Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Hello, um, my name is Helen Parton. I'm an architecture and design journalist, so shock horror, not an architect. But um, I've spoken to a lot of you over the years, so um, I feel your pain. Um, and uh, <laughs> so here we are, Negroni Talks. I'm so bored with the RIBA. Um, that's in the singular with I. I think it's probably a we, isn't it, in the room? So um, anyway, uh, let's get on. So I thought the best place to start was probably to look at um, Reba's website to see what they said they do and maybe compare and contrast with what you, the audience, and you, the panellists, think. Um, so, a global membership body driving excellence in architecture, serving members to better deliver buildings and places, stronger communities and sustainable environments. So, how do they do that? So, I'm sure you've um, entered awards, competitions, attended lectures, workshops, exhibitions, and community-centered, uh, community engagement programs. Um, so, a wide variety of things that Reba does. But... There have been some criticisms levelled at the organisation, like any big organisation. Um, as a journalist, my journalist union, not great, but, you know, it's there, and you can uh, reference it in a stern letter to uh, someone you want to get paid from, and you get paid. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. So, back to the RBA. Um, it's been uh, levelled... The criticisms levelled at it have included that it's out of date, it's bureaucratic, it's ineffective, it's expensive, it's too London-centric... And it's lacking diversity, which are topics we'll come on to um, with our panellists and with the audience. Um, so maybe a quick show of hands. So Reba has 44,000 members. How many have we got in the room this evening? Quite a few. Okay. Good stuff. Um, so um, we're going to be asking exactly what do people want from Reba? What changes should be made? How should it make those changes um, who is it really there for? Um, do our, or other organisations do it better? So these and other questions will be debated by our panellists um, this evening. So the format will be, I'll introduce the panellists. They'll put forward their uh, viewpoints and further introductions of who they are. Then I'll ask some questions. Then, oh, how many people have been to a Negroni talk before? Quite a few. So, you know, you know, I'm, I'm less of a chair, more of a ringmaster, right? So um, I'm going to be, um, you know, keeping control of things. But, you know, it's a nice informal debate. Um, not too much reba-bashing people. You know, we want, a, we want a bright, kind of balanced debate. So without further ado, um, we have with us um, Elsie Wusu of Elsie Wusu Architects. Um, Russell Curtis of RCKA. Where's he? He's at the back. Is he... In his normal sp- he's in his normal spot. <laughs> Not heckling this time, though. No. Okay. <laughs> We've got 
Next to me, uh, Zoe Berman of Studio Berman and founder of Part W Collective, which we'll hear a little bit more about at some point during the evening. We will. And then, where's Stephanie? Oh, Stephanie. Stephanie Edwards, founder and director of Urban Symbiotics and a Reba London councillor. Oh, and I forgot Elsie, of course. You're a Reba National Council member. Yeah. So we've got a good broad spread of speakers, I think. Now, Russell volunteered to go first. <laughs> With his viewpoint. So we're going to keep it brief. Okay. We're going to keep it pithy. It didn't feel like much of a volunteering process. Yeah, well, it? you know. So, and, and actually, you've stolen my first line, because I was going to ask how many people are members oh, here. But sorry. Um, anyway, we, we won't do that bit anymore. But, you um, can do it again. I'm let's do it again. Actually, I'm interested to know how many people here are architects. Oh, there you go. Okay. And now keep your arms up if you are an RBA member, put them down if you're not an RBA member. So how many people here, what I'm trying to find out is how many people here are architects but not RBA members? So, so that's, that's actually not bad, not bad, not bad. Um, but if you, ask, if you ask your mum what the difference between the ROBA and the ARB is, what would be the answer? You know, nobody knows. People know what the ROBA is, but people don't really know what the ARB is. RBA. So um, the RBA has an image problem. It's to the general public, I think. It, it's the institute. It's the organisation that represents architects. Um, but most people's interaction with it is the occasional red signboard that they might see uh, up outside some, uh, somebody's uh, house extension. Um, but what most people don't understand is that the RBA is not there to serve the interests of members. Okay? It's a membership organisation. It's not there to serve the interests of members. The Charter, uh, which dates back to 1834, states that the RBA is there for the general advancement of civil architecture and for promoting and facilitating the acquirement... I mean, is that a word anymore? Anyway, the acquirement of the knowledge of the various arts and sciences connected therewith. That's what the RIBA is there for. But to architects outside London, the RIBA is seen as London-centric and elitist, taking a huge annual fee and doing little to improve the lot of small practices, except, of course, the wonderful RIBA journal, which I have to say because uh, Hugh is here. But it is it's fantastic. So that's that one thing that people get, you know, they, they feel they get the, the value from the RIBA. But £400 a year or whatever, it's what do you get for your money? But for London members... We're sport for choice. We have all these fantastic organisations. Uh, the Architecture Foundation clearly is one of those. But, um, you know, the running events in, in the city. So for, for outside London, the RIBA is seen as London-centric. But inside London, it's seen as an irrelevance. To young architects, it's a stuffy old men's club, which has failed to adapt to the realities of contemporary practice. Um, now, when you travel home on the train, if you live in North London and uh, pass through Fringley Park, as I do, on a Wednesday evening, whenever... I know the thing, I know shit all about football, so I apologise for this terrible football analogy, but there's always some bloke on the train, it's always a bloke, moaning about Arsenal, you know, and what they should have done in the match they've just lost. Um, as if Arsenal doesn't have all of the, you know, millions of pounds to spend on statisticians and management, you know, how to run an organisation... Um, but no, Dave from Hartford knows how it should be done. If only they'd ask him. 
Now, the RBA is a bit like that. We have people sort of sitting on the sidelines, constantly sniping. You know, what, the RBA doesn't do this, doesn't do that, it's not doing this badly. But in actual fact, you know, the turnover at the last, sorry, the turnover, the, the, uh, the turn, uh, turnout for the last presidential election was less than 20%. The RABA has a £44 million turnover. It employs more people than AHMM. <laughs> Believe it or not. 27,000 of those, approximately, are chartered. Uh, and around half of those are in London. So, Alan Jones was elected recently. 19% of the turnover. 5,000 votes. Five, that's pitiful. It's pitiful. Five years ago, I ran for a seat on council, sort of frustrated with this this constant sniping of the RIB. I think well, I can, you know, I can, I'm going to single-handedly change it. But obviously, that didn't happen. Um, but I managed to get onto a council without a voting process. There were eight seats and eight candidates. You know, I mean, what, that's that hardly a shining beacon of democracy. Why is there so much apathy about it? The problem is the RIBA tries to be all things to all people and therefore fails to be anything at all. Uh, the decision-making process is a nightmare. There's a council of over 60 people, all of whom have conflicting agendas and competing manifestos. And if you want to make any changes, you have to ask the Queen for permission. I'm not joking. Any change to bylaws has to go to the Privy Council, which is effectively asking the Queen for permission. I mean, it's ludicrous. So what do these 500 people do? I've no idea. They seem to spend their entire time telling me not to tweet about stuff, which is just, which is insane. So I'm just going to close with, uh, with five, a five-point plan for how we, how we transform the ROBA. It needs to be much leaner. 500 people is ludicrous. 50 people at most. It needs to be more outspoken and more passionate. It's there to promote architecture, not architects. Don't be afraid of upsetting the members who don't understand this. Stop trying to be a profit centre. Everything is focused on growth. It's all about membership numbers. It's all about profitability. It needs to stop that. It needs massive devolution to the regions. Proper funding, staff and resourcing should all go into the regional, regional organisations and promote those. And, and the way to do it, I think, is if you're a student... There are something like 12,000 student members. You can join the RABA for free. 12,000 student members. There were 5,000 votes for the last presidential election. If all of the RABA student members got together and voted collectively, they could vote almost whoever they liked into a position of power. Now, it's arguable about how much power the, uh, the president has, but it would be worth a go, wouldn't it? Let's put the power in the hands of the young people who have something to say about the ROBA, and let's do away with the stuffy old white men. Thank you, Russell. You know, the thing about Arsenal is they always think they're going to walk it in. So, um, over to uh, some IT, IT crowd fans in the room. Um, so, we're going to go over to Zoe now. How does this, is this working? Is this working? Okay. Um, I thought we were going to be like responding to specific questions. So Russell has amazingly prepared. I'm just going to spiel. Um, so I am, I'm a practicing architect. Um, I'm an educator and increasingly I'm involved in 
Yes, this. Um, I'm not used to this, am I? Um, increasingly, I'm involved in campaigning specifically around um, seeking to address gender issues within the built environment um, and have a lovely couple of um, members of Part W here this evening. So when I become um, a bit inarticulate, they can speak better than me. Um, so I will, I will kind of um, look at this, this question around um, uh, questioning of the groups, the foundations, the organisations that uh, purport to represent us, I look at that kind of question um, through those three prisms. And so in terms of practice, I am um, a practitioner who runs my own. I'm a director of a small practice. We are a collective of architects and uh, we come together on a project-by-project -project basis. So our practice is kind of non-traditional. It's, um, it's nimble, it's small, it's quite young, though supported and advised by people who are um, kind of more senior um, than us. So we're kind of also cross-generational in that sense. And uh, I don't feel that I see that the RIBA is reflecting supporting these kind of non-traditional forms of practice. I think that they are seen as fringe. I think that they're seen as other. I think using kind of language like guerrilla tactics suggests that uh, suggests that otherness. Um, and actually, I would really like to see the RIBA doing more to, th to promote and put on an equal playing field different forms of practice, which I think then in turn will also much more enable support um, and see greater forms of diversity, particularly around gender issues. Um, it is incredibly difficult for women to make progress in the industry. As, as we all know, you know, I'm kind of preaching to the converted here, but in terms of having practices that are more flexible, where there's more opportunity to work in not con you know, other forms, um, other structures, <clears throat> that I really think would, um, you know, and, and Part W very much believes that uh, that will enable, kind of set the ladders for more a next generation of young women to be um, part of the industry that I think is fundamentally important. In terms of education, I actually think the ROBA is doing some quite good things around education. I think that they have some quite um, positive programs that they're starting up. I think the school, schools program that's going on is really, really good. But that should be being funded by the, mem the income from members. It is being sponsored by external, um, by external parties. And actually, if I were an RIBA member, which at the moment I am not, because I don't think that it reflects me and reflects my interests, and so therefore why would I pay to be part of something that doesn't reflect me, um, I would very much want to see my membership going into that kind of thing. And at the moment, it, it isn't. And so I think those initiatives really have to be properly funded. They have to be properly resourced to um, create those bridges for uh, a more diverse next generation of young people to be coming through. I also think as an educator, I think it's outrageous that the ROBA doesn't speak up about the fact that educators are so much assumed, um, particularly uh, visiting lecturers, that you kind of do it for the love. That's an absolute nonsense. Um, and if we are not valued, then we can't be saying to our students that this is an industry that values you. Um, and that, I think, the ROBA should be speaking much... You know, if you're validating schools, they should be speaking much, much more loudly about actually paying people to educate for their time to be recompensed properly, for prep time, for all of the work that you do that I know that you know, a, a lot of us do outside of our studio teaching. Uh, there are some schools that are kind of better than others, um, but actually, if you've got... In the kind of the bigger sense, if you've got 
uh, universities that are able to pay their, um, their vice chancellors anything from 400 to 700,000 pounds a year, then, you know, it's kind of the same thing as the NHS, you know, the, the same system of people who are on the front line are not paid properly for the work that they do. I think that also then means that we have, you know, we know that the RIBA statistics is that 35% of um, uh, permanent teaching staff uh, in working in, edu in, in, in RBA validated schools are female. Um, how can you actually encourage more women to be going, coming into academia, into research, if you can't see people who look like you who are teaching you? Um, so that, I think, is something that the RBA needs to speak up about. And then lastly, um, I know I'm probably running over my time, um, but, okay. Um, so lastly, Part W, the campaign that we have been running, the campaign that we um, have launched recently is around challenging the fact that the award system, the methods of recognition um, within architecture consistently are always going to men. Um, and we have picked up on this particularly around the RIBA gold medal. We know that the Pritzker Prize has just been awarded tonight as well to another man. Um, surprise. Um, and that, uh, if for any of you who don't know this, the gold medal, the RIBA gold medal has been going since 1848. It has been awarded in that time to one woman in her own right. It has been awarded to three women in husband and wife partnerships. This is absolutely outrageous. And that we are having the thing that I'm kind of bored about what I'm bored about with the RIBA was the fact that we are having to still call this out. This is a nonsense. We shouldn't be having to do this. Like, Part W is all run on kind of a voluntary basis. Phenomenal women who are putting in an awful lot of time to, camp you know, to kind of campaign on these issues. But actually, we should be able to be getting on with our job and doing what we do best without having to spend a lot of our time um, calling out one of the main you know, organizations that is supposed to represent us and actually only really awards, recognizes, and gives credit and value to a very narrow um, and limited uh, band of men. Cool. Thank you, Zoe. I'm going to come back to you on the, some specifics on the gender parity issues later on, I think, because there's an awful lot to say on that alone, I think. Okay, Stephanie, over to you. Hello, hi. Um, so my name is Stephanie Edwards. Um, I'm a RIBA London Council member. I'm also a member of the East London Group, um, the RIBA East London Group. I'm also a member of the RIBA's Library Committee, which does sound, is better than it sounds. <laughs> Actually, which um, deals with generally public programmes, its cultural arm, and its outreach, especially for, to younger children. Um, I'm also a member of the Black Females in Architecture Collective. I'm also a member of Paradigm, which is looking at the diversity shift. And I've just co-founded um, a new practice. So <laughs> I'm a member of a lot of groups, but I can tell you that I wasn't in this position two years ago. So two years ago, I decided to stand for um, council, the RIBA. I decided to stand because... For me, the RIBA did not represent me, and it didn't represent my contemporaries. For someone that's quite young and a young practitioner and a black female, it definitely wasn't something that resonated with me. So in terms of the subject, I'm so bored with the RIBA, this would not even have factored, to be honest with you, um, the RIBA. But it is a gateway. It governs our part one. It gov governs our part two. It governs our part three. And so I stood for to actually help the RIBA become more relevant. When I was doing my election campaign, people were asking me, but what does it provide you beyond a magazine? And I couldn't actually answer the question. So when I was asked to speak today, I thought, two years on, how is the RIBA now? 
So I wanted to see the RIBA as a diverse institute, an institute that essentially represented the communities that we all serve, especially in London. There's over 40% uh, black and minority ethnic people in London. But we don't have that represented in council. We don't have that represented in architecture. I also wanted it to look at, to be a network that supports architects and supports people that want to be an architect from all backgrounds. And also to be a platform for innovation. Why can't the RIBA just be a little bit more interesting? <laughs> but <laughs> so two years on, I looked into my experience in council, which has been quite interesting. Um, would I say I'm bored of the RIBA? I'd say I was more frustrated. Um, it's quite a difficult machine to navigate, which is obviously not a surprise. Um, but even in council, I think a year and a half in, I was like, okay, now I may know how I want to attack and work within this realm if I have a chance. So it's really quite hard, and I don't think the perception has changed at all. Um, so if I would say how effective have my campaign been within two years, I'm not sure. But what's actually fantastic about the RIBA are the people. So there's some amazing people at the RIBA, and they're doing a lot to make a change. So I'm sitting next to Diane Small, who's um, a London director, and she's working with her team to really change the RIBA. I haven't seen such an interesting mix of people brought into the RIBA in the last two years. We're working even with the different RIBA um, collectives, so, or the different groups, the London groups, the East London group, which I'm part of. They do fantastic talks. They're really talking to their members, and they really understand how to engage. We've also got Fiona McDonald, who's working with the learning team. She's fantastic. She's really, she's um, part of the um, National Schools Programme, which I was helping to promote. They have actually reached out to 18,000 children. And I think we really need to, uh, to be teaching people how architecture affects them, to actually give them a voice and a platform um, to talk about what they believe, how they believe the, their natural environment or their built environment really affects them, um, especially teenagers, in my opinion. Also, there have been Future Architects Network has been set up by Selassie, Simeon and Abigail, who are young members of um, RIBA National Council. And there are, there's a social mobility paper that's coming out. So whilst I wanted to make a change, it was just really fascinating, or not so fascinating, that we didn't actually know what the status quo is. We don't know what the members of the RIBA are, what they look like, who they represent. So how can we change something we don't understand and know? And so we do know that with this new social mobility paper, uh, with a roadmap, they are actually now going to be looking at collecting data and looking at gender, looking at socioeconomic background, looking at race. So we can actually start to make a change and understand the barriers in the profession and support them to actually continue their career throughout. So for me, um, I think they're doing fantastic things. Is it enough? Is it communicated well enough? I'm not sure. Do we all in the room understand what the RBA is doing for us? For me, I think we need to keep ch like challenging and being critical to what the RIBA does represent because it's the only thing we have. So we can either complain on the sidelines or get involved and make sure that our, our voice is heard. Plus, now that we've sold the RIBA enterprises, I think the time is now to really make a change. So uh, that's me. I'd be really interested to, to see that um, the social mobility paper when that comes out. So, yeah, can't wait. Elsie, over to you. Um, 
Okay, thank you. Well, that was very positive, Stephanie. <laughs> Waving the flag, positivity. That's great. Um, so, um, well, I'm not bored with the RIBA. But six years ago, I was bored with the RIBA. And um, Jane Duncan said, was setting up this new system for role models. And they invited me to be a role model. And I said, I don't want to be a role model. I'm bored with the RIBA. And they said, no, it's fantastic. It's all going to change. Um, we've got this new diversity policy. And so, um, so and, 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 I, and you can speak your mind, they said. Um, so <laughs> that, that was... Uh, that was a, a, a real, um, I wouldn't say a red rag to a ball, but anyway. Um, and um, six years later, I'm not bored with the RIBA. I am deeply, deeply frustrated. Um, I know that in 2013, there was a paper which went through council. Um, you know, we have these papers and we're allowed to ask one question and no follow-up. But anyway, this paper went through council which said that RIBA was going to... Um, partner with its sister organisations like the um, BM, the British Medical Council, the Bar Council, um, and the Law Society, and turn itself into a modern organisation. Now, the Bar Council has 51% um, students going through um, the education at the moment. Um, it also has something like 13%, which is a reflection of the BAME population. Um, REBA um, has, as far as I know, as far as the, pro the, the figures that I know, has 9% of the 44,000 members, which, folks, is 396 BAME registered, chartered architects. And, you know, sitting in here, you look out of the window and you see a diverse London. You see an exciting, innovative, thriving city. Um, that's not what the membership of the RIBA reflects. And that, in my view, RIBA should look like the society in general. So if there's 13% BAME, that's the target that we should be aiming for. And in actual fact, the, the, the figures have gone backwards. Over the last five years, the figures of BAME ar registered architects has fallen by 8.6%. Um, and, and, I mean, you know, I think, for me, if people want to buy a building in central London and they want to meet their friends and have drinks, that's fine. But the RIBA, as Stephanie says, is a gateway for so many young people who are paying £9,000 per year before they even start earning, you know, paying their rent. And that's a huge investment for lots and lots of people from modest backgrounds who are really determined to become architects. So, as far as I'm concerned, Reba as a gatekeeper owes those young people a duty of care. So if I refer back again, let's follow the numbers, to BAME students, there's a 90% failure rate. So, of every 10 young people from a BAME background that enter the profession, at the start of part one, only one of those young people gets through to become an architect. So, you know, so my story is, so if Stephen Lawrence had, come, had, had lived, if he hadn't been tragically murdered, would he have made an architect? And the numbers say that he probably wouldn't have, you know. 
And so we're losing talent. Those young people are spending a lot of money giving their everything to, to train those seven plus years to become architects. And very, very few of those young people make it. They're stacking shelves, not that there's anything wrong with stacking shelves. They're frying chicken, not that there's anything wrong with frying chicken. But if you've served your time for seven years to become an architect, I think that's a real disappointment. It's a loss to the profession. It's a loss to the communities that those young people could serve. And it's certainly a loss to those young people themselves, and it's a loss to us. Um, so even at that level, I'm just very sad about what the RIBA could do and what it isn't doing. Okay, thank you. So we've heard from our panellists. Um, are there any um, quick wins that Reba can do to listen more and make itself more relevant? This might involve some very nimble microphone management, but if any of our panellists have any thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, it could do what it said it would do in 2013 and have a roundtable with the Law Society, the BAME, and the Bar Council and see how they've turned themselves around. Uh, I think that would be very straightforward. That could be arranged next week. Anyone else got any thoughts on that? Yeah, please. This is all about audience participation. <laughs> I'm Mike Clark. I'm Director of Membership Engagement at the RIBA. So I'm listening. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to correct. I don't want to really comment on what, you, what you've been saying. <laughs> So I'll take that back. Um, but I just wanted to correct some, some figures that Russell gave at the beginning because Russell was correct in quoting from the annual report in 2018 that we had a turnover or an income of 44 million. Yeah, I'll turn to fact, yeah. But of that 44 million, just 8 million, 8.9 million is your subscriptions. And the, those figures conflate Reba Enterprises and the charity of the Institute. So the Institute costs about 20 million to run. So if you're 8.9 million, we go out and find the rest to deliver all the things we deliver over the year, including a learning program. And I was director of development, so I raised the money to make the learning program happen. So I just wanted to correct that, that you, you, you contribute about 8.9 million in your subs across 44,000 members. And that's not just chartered members, that's affiliates and associates and, and so on. Um, and we support about 12 to 16,000 students for free every year. Um, I just wanted to just, just clear up that one financial thing in case everyone thinks. And there aren't, there aren't 500 employees. There, there are less than 220, and half of those are in the regions. So when you say about investing in the regions, more than half of our staff are actually in the regions. The other 250, in fact, Reba Enterprises is bigger than the Institute, and we recently sold 60% of it to Lloyds Bank. So just so you know, there'll be a huge hole in the budget next year when we don't have the income from Reba Enterprises to subsidize what we do. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, so, Reba needs to be, be more dynamic, um, which, I don't know, maybe seems too contrasting things there. Um, does anyone on the panel or indeed the audience um, have uh, any thoughts on how to be a, an organisation for 2019 rather than an organisation? Oh, we have an audience member already. Hi. You've, um, if the question is how to make Reba relevant, uh, you've talked a lot about the diversity of the members, but I think the purpose is also what matters. Yeah. And um, so I'm an engineer, and uh, my, the charter of my body, SIBSI, 
is not to serve engineering, it's to serve engineering for the public good. And I think that's a massive difference in how we act. So our guidance focuses a lot on sustainability. It's available for free for members. A lot of architects are members of CIBZ because this is where they get guidance, which I find shocking if they don't get it from the RIBA. And we don't represent members. I mean, hopefully they agree with us, but we're not a trade body. And ultimately, we genuinely are driven by public good. And I wonder whether that could also be a way to bring more diversity to the membership, have a clear, inspiring purpose in the first place. Okay. An engineer speaks. So, uh, panelists, do you have any... Uh, Zoe, you had some strong thoughts on, on gender parity in, in general and inclusivity, as did you, Elsie. Do you have any um, response to our member in engineering fraternity, or sorority, rather, probably? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try. Um, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, engineering actually is even worse in terms of gender diversity. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. Moving on I think the purpose of, of the original purpose of REBA is excellent architecture for civic good, civic purpose, which has implied in it social justice. And, and that is fantastic. That's why I'm interested in REBA. But that is a long way from I, how I perceive it. I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody just earlier on that if you read in the AJ today, three practices have been awarded a billion pounds worth of work. I mean, how is that serving the public good? You know, how can you serve a community if you're, I don't care what it is, doing, whether it's widgets or houses, you know, it has to be that relationship. It has to be a social relationship. And I think, profoundly believe it has to be based on social justice. And I, that's how I interpret Reba's purpose. But sadly, that's not what happens. I, I, know, I agree with you. I just wanted to, uh, in terms of trying to think about quick fixes, it might not be that quick to fix, yeah. but I find one of the issues with the ROBA is accountability at the, at the head of the institution, because the, as soon as I seem to get to know the REBA president, they're, on, they're being phased out and a new one's coming in. <laughs> like, I've only just met Ben Derbyshire in March this year. And he's on his way out, or already has gone, I'm not sure. Um, so there's this, but there's this long period of them phasing out and the other one phasing in that I find a bit confusing. And I just wonder if we had a longer-term presidency that meant that we could point fingers and demand responses from, whether that would be one of the quick fixes where they would be accountable for you know, their era and their legacy could be much more accountable to one person. Okay, um, Russell, we'll come to you in a second, but we do have some Reba people here. Maybe we could have a, a quick fire response, perhaps. You want to take that on? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Wouldn't that be amazing to have a president that didn't change every 18 months? So we, as bureaucrats within an organisation, didn't have to flip-flop from one policy decision to another, that every president reverses the previous president's things or, or, or moves direction completely. That would be brilliant. That I think if the organisation had a five-year strategy and a president that sat for longer, it does, it does, and a president that stood for longer to deliver the strategy and a business plan that, that went forward more than one year and a budget that went forward more than one year, 
some of the changes that you want to implement and others want to implement might be a lot easier. Can I, can I just add, are you suggesting that REBA presidents tend to change their mind a lot? No, REBA presidents change a lot. Okay, well, we, the REBA president, Ben, confirmed he was going to be here tonight. He's one, we're a speaker down. I just wondered if there was a problem with commitment. See, that, that, that's architects for you, they're really flaky. So um, we're going to go, Russell, you had a point, and then we're going to come back. Yeah. No. <laughs> I was being a slightly facetious and a little bit unfair. You facetious? But, what? But, 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 you know, there are, there are at the moment 60-something people on council. You, know, that you cannot make decisions in an organisation like the RIBA with 60 people in a room. It just doesn't work. The, there are moves at the moment to dramatically reduce the size of council, to make it a much more efficient decision-making body, and actually to delegate more. They won't go into the ins and outs of it, but there is also a board, a small panel of people who are uh, in, uh, dele have the delegated uh, delegated powers to make certain decisions. So, you know, I think things are moving in a direction, certainly in the terms of in terms of decision-making. But this issue about the the presidency is is a profound one. You simply cannot make uh, any impact in two years. And after one year, of course, you've then got a president-elect who's then the, you know, he's then the news. You know, and, we, and, and, and basically Ben, has, you know, Ben is, uh, his last meeting, I think, is in a, couple, in, a, in a few weeks. Alan comes in in September. But pretty much the last year, it's all been about Alan, what Alan wants to achieve. And in reality, nobody achieves anything. Or the, 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 the achievements are always scuppered by some other event that comes along. Um, and so the president really needs to have much more agency, much more power than the RBA to enact the things that they've, the platform that they've stood on. And it just doesn't happen. Okay. Thank you, Russell. Stephanie, you had a point to make as well. Um, I think it's a really good point in terms of the president's changing, but actually it lends itself to looking at the wider structure of the RIBA. Like, the RIBA is just too bureaucratic. I mean, we, they have a CEO, so the CEO makes decisions, but then are they liaising with the president? Like, how, how is this working? And then, as you said, they're constantly changing. And I think the reason why everyone does so well at the grassroots or from the bottom up is because they can actually do things without having to go through this whole like dinosaur of and like web of an institution if i mean realistically i think a quick win is almost to dismantle it and start again i mean <laughs> maybe that's too much but it in order to make a a, a decision a, a decision that is long lasting maybe it's something that needs to be done and maybe we can all decide that the value of the architect is important we need to make that valuable to the people that use architecture and the built environment and start from there. Applause, Applause for that, a radical idea, come on. Um, so in our pre-discussions, we were comparing um, the role of the RBA with that of um, comparable organisations in other countries. And um, for, in for instance, the organisation in the Netherlands was, was far better respected by its um, respective members. And indeed, um, the same is true for other countries. So have we got any um, members of any international organisations? Otherwise, I'm going to have to move swiftly on. But just any other international standpoints? Aha! Marvellous. Would you take the microphone? So how does that compare in Australia? Uh, Australia, yeah. yeah. I used to actually work for the Institute of Architects in Australia. 
Very interesting. So can you um, give us some insight into, into that world? Uh, it sounds very similar. So an organisation which is too large. Right. <laughs> um, an organisation that starts to work for itself rather than for the members. Um, not as large as here. Like, it sounds crazy to have 500 staff. That's just insane. Um, they, I, think, I think that was amended, wasn't it? <laughs> they have a turnover of about 13 million with about 100 staff. Australian dollars. Um, look, one of, the, one of the biggest problems is they try to do many, many programs and it's hard to cull those programs once they're in place because members fall in love with whatever that program is. And you end up with a lot of committees and committees are great for the architects to feel like they're involved with something, but committees don't actually do much. It's more about just a sense of belonging to a group. But what we see is the groups around the institute, actually, they get a lot done. So I think you have Open House here as well. Um, open House is amazing in Melbourne, for example. They do so much for public outreach because they have a very clear agenda. They don't have bureaucracy. They just get on with one thing they do really, really well. Um, so I think, and also watching the smaller groups which come up to basically fill the gap. So we have a non-profit group called Team. They understand members, they work for the members, they don't have a huge staff body, so they, they end up having to get things done for themselves, and that seems to be far more effective. Okay. Interesting stuff. Um, anyone else got any... Um International insight, or indeed insights from perhaps, as you mentioned, smaller practices. Anyone from a smaller practice who think that perhaps they're less served by Reba, or that maybe that Reba can um, serve them a little bit better, having in a in a small-ish practice. Anyone got any thoughts on that? Oh, there yeah. we go. Come on, Steve. Um, <laughs> sorry for coming <laughs> out with something again. Um, small practice, five six people over the last couple of years. Tries to keep things lean and mean. We lost a job to someone. Um, we thought rather unfairly. We had phoned up REBA and used the REBA membership services for legal advice. And we were told that we had a case. And we did the right things under the Code of Ethics. And the person we lost the job to had done the wrong things under the Code of Ethics. So we were told that, yes, you could take this further, but it's not in our interest to. It's better just to leave it. So we lose the job, the person who got the job gets the job, and Reba advised us to do pretty much nothing. Now, as a small practice, you feel a little bit kind of um, let down, but also, in some ways, it was a reality check as well, because what can an institute do with a code of ethic to back up a small practice that's been hard done by. So there's a kind of institutional problem, maybe not a REBA problem. Okay. Anyone want to respond to that? Or add anything to it, Zoe? Yeah, so I think, um, I suppose, just continuing with, uh, uh, with a kind of a thread about what the RIBA maybe could do, I think what, I think what you're talking about um, is a sort of practical, um, pragmatic help. I think there also is a real role to be talking about um, recognition and the way in which practices are recognized, yes, in award systems, but also kind of in exhibitions. Um, and that there, I would really like to see um, more, um, more of 
uh, non-standard, non-traditional types of practice being invited to be in the space, to be in, um, to have exhibitions, to be part of the conversations, because it, it, at the moment it does feel quite like a lot of, a lot of the sort of the public, there's kind of a tendency towards uh, exhibitions being granted to the kind of the big names, and that is, that I think doesn't really help um, smaller practices feeling that they have a part and a place um, until they maybe get to a certain point. It's kind of like if you, you know, if you get to a sort of a 20-person scale, then may you kind of have a way in. And uh, I think I think there would be a lot more... I think it would be really, really beneficial for there to be greater forms of recognition. Um, and, yeah. I think, that's, I think that's true, but I think also what um, Elsie was saying, I think... Um, um, there might, and, and maybe suggested by a few other people who have spoken out so far, is that if there, if there is possibility for a more diverse type of practice, to maybe on the periphery, like in Australia, where there's a lot of, you know, you know, sort of um, bubbles outside the, the institution allowing to prosper, then maybe that should be encouraged, and that can help the, the smaller practices, and particularly the younger practices. I think the point made about youth is important. Yeah, and smaller, um, younger, smaller practices, but also I think it's really, um, it would be incredibly positive if the groups that are starting up that are seeking to challenge some of these issues, and I think it speaks volumes, the fact that there are groups like um, the Urbanistas, um, Black Female Architects, um, Praxis, uh, 3.09, the fact that these groups feel that they need to start up at all means that they feel that they're not being recognised and actually it would be actually such a quick win and so kind of it just feels so obvious for the ROBA to be inviting those groups in rather than us having to kind of be sitting on the outside um, uh, there shouldn't be this sense of them and us um, and that those groups who are doing amazing things should be being brought into the conversation. Do you know what? I was going to come to you. This is so weird. I had your name circled. It's as if we we planned it. Diane, please go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm Diane Small. Uh, Firstly, I'm an architect. Um, I'm also the director of RIBA London. Um, And Zoe, just before I forget, that's exactly what we're doing. We're picking up these, these collectives, um, 3.09, uh, BFA. So if anybody knows of a collective who's young, just doing something in architecture, just send them my way, because that's exactly... We can, we can connect, because that's exactly um, what I'm here to do. Um, I actually applied for a different role at the ROBA. I applied to be a CPD coordinator. Um, and at the end of the interview, um, the interview went really well. Uh, who's my line manager now? He said to me, as an architect, what do you really think of the RIBA? So I was like, <laughs> are we finished with the interview? So I told him exactly what I thought about the RIBA and uh, what I thought about architecture in itself. And because of that, they actually asked me to apply for a different role as regional director. So I've come in with a mission and a purpose, and I've been in my role for coming up to three years now, and I'm not swaying from that. Um, I always get architects saying, what does the RBA do for me? Um, One of the first things I tell them is, the RBA is a member organization, and a member is you. 
So don't think of the RBA as something out there. It is actually you. Um, so it's what are you doing for your organization? And there's many ways in which you can do that. There's the uh, London Architects Group. So we, we really need to kind of just forget about the big RIBA, the big beast that no one can kind of figure out. London is one of 11 regions, and London has the highest number of members. So there's 12,000 of us, and I say us because I'm included. So just by where we are and who we're connected to, we are the ROBA in essence. And I'm the director of ROBA, so I'll just call for anybody who has an idea to come to me because I can't figure it out for myself. I need you guys to kind of come to me and I'll do my best to make it happen. You heard it here first, there she is. Come and see her. Um, now, I know there was, some, so there was some, some talking at the back. I don't know whether it was Finn or whether it was Russell, but I think one of them is going to take the mic now. So, um, oh, no, we've got a lady. Let's, let's, let's go for the lady at the back, actually. Oh, there was a couple. Hang on. Hi. So I'm Hilary Satchel, and I'm part of the Part W group with Zoe. Oh. So recently, we were, uh, we were trying to work out around the ROBA gold medal. Um, when do we nominate? How do we nominate? Every single RIBA member can nominate someone from the gold medal. It's completely impenetrable. And to find out, I had to work out who the um, director of awards was in the RIBA, guess his email address and email him, because it's not on the RIBA website. Stuff appears and disappears on the website, and I appreciate managing that is a massive job, but the thing I really think the ROBA needs to do is just be more transparent and just make more information about who's doing what job and when it's going to happen available. You don't need to hide stuff from us. Just tell us what it is. If we email you, great. Um, so I think I'm just my call is for more transparency, more telling us who we should speak to, telling us who's doing things and when things are happen. Some people will hold you to account for that, but I think we'd all feel much more that we knew what was going on and that we could get in and influence and be part of the discussion. So my call is for greater transparency. Okay. All right. I, I was going to say, yeah, did anyone want to pick that up? I just the email thing. You'll 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 understand that if we publish our email addresses online, then every phishing, scamming, junk email robot will pick those individual emails up, and all our individual inboxes will be full up. So we tend to only publish membership at RIBA or awards at, but those inboxes are are, are monitored on a daily basis and picked up. Again, use Diane as your your. If you're based in London, you're an architect. You're real single point of contact is the regional director and that's Diane so any question about the RIBA no matter what it is ask Diane and her team and, and, well in a way you are you are the, you are the, the their account manager in, in a way so I would always say do that you're right that Royal Gold Medal is a, is a medal which we give internationally it's a lifetime achievement award which we've given for hundreds it's one of our oldest awards. it's not the oldest president's medals for students procedure but it's international, we only give one a year, and there are a queue of people who've had lifetime achievements you know, going back, but you can nominate. The awards committee is a diverse group of individuals, it's not a group of white middle-aged men like myself, it's a mixed group, they make the decision, but you have to nominate. 
and you have to nominate with a good reason to nominate, and they will consider those nominations. The same goes for honorary fellowships. In the UK, that's any non-architect in the UK who has contributed enough to the profession you think they deserve an honorary fellowship. And international fellowships, that's any architect anywhere in the world who you think has contributed enough to, it, to, to architecture that you think should be rewarded and recognised by the RIBA. You nominate them all round about the same time. Um, you have Matt's email address now. I do. The, uh, the head of awards is matt.dobson at riba.org. <laughs> I can let you know. <laughs> Mine is mike.clark, clark with an e at riba.org. So we don't keep that non-transparent for a reason. It's just an industry standard thing just to stop our inboxes being full with phishing emails. It's, it's not necessarily about email addresses, but just the transparency of information being available, I think, is really diff diff difficult. Um, and... We just need to. We just need to know what's going on. To know to, to know that you can nominate for the gold medal, you have to see it in one email that comes once a year, buried in there are 93 interesting things going on that month, and okay. we need to be celebrating and getting people out there saying actually there's a different view on who that could be. There's a different way of looking at how we should recognise authority and experience and real value in the profession. And I think we need to be campaigning to make that more open and, and just have a debate around it. Don't let it be hidden. Okay. Thank All right. you. I know there was a, a lady in the fabulous spectacles on this, on this table here who wanted to make a point. Um, I think I would argue that the ROBA has um, a disconnect with its members and that also comes through communication. So I was a journalist for a good number of years working as a kind of reporter looking at the ROBA. And I would go to council, and I would spend 90% of each council meeting sat outside. And they would march me outside and say, you're not allowed to listen to this. And it would be really dull things that like, didn't need you to not be in that room. And they knew I was going to find it out anyway, because I talked to everyone. <laughs> and I'm a journalist, and that's my job. But it was that they had this fear. And it, it was about a fear of people knowing what was going on. And actually, I think they would have a lot more kind of respect from their members if their members knew what was happening in that room and knew what was being talked about and like, knew where their money was going and knew, yeah, how they could nominate for awards and how they could do this thing. Because at the moment, they see the ROBA is not doing anything for them. But that comes from the fact that they don't communicate what they do. And anyone, any further thoughts on that? Oh, there's a, is there an opinion? Oh, you've already got the microphone. Yes, I do. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm Biliana Savage. I'm one of the people who used to be a RIBA member um, for nearly 20 years. And I was a member while the organizations that I worked for were prepared to pay the membership. And then when I was, uh, found myself in a situation where I had to pay the membership, I realized that it was the most expensive professional journal, journal subscription, and I stopped paying it. Um, Two things for um, RIBA to think about. I think that the separation between the register and the professional institute is absolutely ridiculous. I'm also part of the RTPI. They don't have a similar separation. Uh, and it's just totally ridiculous uh, that people have to pay two sets of fees. Um, the second thing is, um, similar to what uh, some of the other people said, RIBA has to listen to its members. Uh, for the 20 years that I was the member, I never had the feeling that the Institute actually listened to what I wanted to get out of it. Um, and what I wanted to get out of it is very similar to what Elsie was talking about. It's actually for the Institute to champion the value of architecture 
uh, in improving people's quality of life. And one way of achieving that is similar to what the uh, American Institute is doing, is actually to set up uh, a team that goes out and works with deprived communities and people who cannot afford to have an architect or you know, designer to work for them. And it's a, a hugely popular uh, sort of set of activities that the American Institute is doing. People are queuing up, volunteering to go out and work with those who really need architects and people who know about built environment. So it's a very simple thing, and I don't know why RIBA is not doing something like that, and it's something that they can start tomorrow if they want to do it. Okay. Any other thoughts from the audience or indeed? Oh, we've, we've where was, where's that one? I'm oh, behind. There we go. Hang on. Let me just pass the microphone back. Oh. Oh, there we go. <laughs> A view from the terrace. Yes, yes, from the terrace. Yes, I'm Marco Guarnieri, and despite my thick Italian accent, I am a fully qualified British architect. And Eva has got some good points, but I wanted to connect to what was said before. I thought it was very interesting about the purpose of the organization and where the value is. And I make a very specific example, which is the Eva plan of work, which has been recently revamped in 2013. I don't know when it was first drafted, but it sounds it was probably decades ago. And uh, basically the point I want to make is that, uh, is it doing any good for us? Because if we all present ourselves in the same way, the only differential is cost. While the way I see the profession is exactly different from this. The value is not in the target package. The value is in the way you can elevate your work to provide the service or provide the space for your client or for whatever uh, public uh, good uh, this uh, might be. And I wonder if there is scope for you know, stepping away from that. I mean, I understand the purpose of creating a standard, but is there any way to go beyond that? Okay, a question there. Um, uh, oh, I knew you'd have a, have a question. I was just going to be disappointed if you didn't have a point of view, Finn, so please go ahead. Thanks. Um, not an architect. I guess I'm one of your failed people, Elsie, in that I ran away. Um, I run a thing called the Architecture Foundation with... Ellis Woodman and Chloe Spibilo. Um There's only one thing more boring than the RIPA, and that's architects whinging about the RIPA. You need a plan. This thing is not going to reform itself. It is huge. It is a behemoth. It's like turning a tanker. And I feel like there's only one of two possible plans available. One plan is a complete withdrawal of consent. Because at the moment, the RIBA exists on the basis of consent from its members. And if the members say, actually, you know what, I'm not going to join the council. I'm not going to stand to be president. I'm not going to pay my subs. I'm withdrawing my consent. That would force a crisis of accountability, which would mean very rapid change in the RIBA. Possibly it would mean the end of the RIBA. Probably not. Probably it would just mean some radical change. Another scenario is a hostile takeover, <laughs> which is maybe the more realistic option, where you line up the next 10 presidents. And it's not like a sort of random free-for-all with a 20% turnout. It's a concerted effort by whether it's the 12,000 students or it is like the community at large. But there is a concerted effort not just to sort of occasionally pollinate the power structure with random good people, but to take the whole fucking thing over. Like, that's the whole point of a democracy. 
entryism. We could have learned this from momentum, right? They did a very good job in Newham of just inserting themselves into a political situation, kicking out the people they didn't like, and taking over the council. We could learn that tactic in the RIBA. But what it would require, I suspect, is some secret meetings. It would require a room above a pub, possibly filled with smoke, and a group of people not dissimilar to this group getting together and describing the vision that is needed and then agreeing on the people who would achieve that vision and then holding to that vision. So it doesn't matter if the president changes every 18 months because guess what? The next one is on the same page as the previous one and is going to pick up where they left off. Because the problem at the moment is we're sort of doing this in a kind of scattergun way, right? Where like... Alan Jones has a different vision to Ben Derbyshire, who had a different vision to Jane Duncan, who had a different vision to Angela Brady, and so on. So we need to join the dots. And in a way, I, you know, I, I kind of love whinging about the RIBA. I wrote a whole poem about how much I hated the RIBA. It was like my sort of literary achievement. I rhymed Pablo Bronstein talk with Carmody Grok. And, you know, it's never going to get better than that as a critic. <laughs> but... Frankly, I'm bored of being bored, and what I really am craving is someone who's going to organize those secret meetings in that room above a pub and come up with the strategy that is capable of replacing the, the kind of stultifyingly dull system that we've got. Okay. I knew I could rely on you for some strong comment. Are we getting a round of applause for that one? <laughs> um, I think it's only fair to um, allow you a, a word. Hang on. Oh, wait. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Pearman, I, I, I edit the RAB Are you going journal. to respond to that? Any of the, yeah, the points yes, yes, because I, I don't think you're going far enough there, actually, Finn. Right. Um, El- Elsie, we're going to come to you next, believe me. Why? why uh, let, me, let me. Well, I'm going I'm to come to you for a positive and upbeat response, right? <laughs> Hugh, sorry, um, please. Yeah, if, uh, I can explain the RABA. I'm at a sort of tangent to it. Um, uh, I edit their magazine. Um, it's not paid for out of the member subscriptions, by the way. We don't get any membership subscription money. We have to be self-supporting. Um, uh, the RABA is like a government ministry. Uh, you've got the civil servants, and then you've got the elected officials. Uh, you've got the minister and so forth, and that's the president. Um, being effectively a civil service department uh, means that it's got that civil servant's avoidance of risk mentality. So it's always easier to say no uh, than to say yes, because if you say yes and it goes wrong, you could be blamed for it. That's the civil service avoidance of risk mentality. And you get that in all institutions. Uh, it doesn't matter what they are. Um, I abide by the advice which uh, a previous president, Michael Manser, gave me uh, probably about 25 years ago. He said, uh, he, was, he had been president. He said, the only way to get anything done at the RIBA, Hugh, remember this, my lad, um, is just do it. Don't, for God's sake, ask anybody's permission. Just do it. And before they realize that you've done it, it's been done. And it's probably perfectly okay. Anyway, what I wanted to say, Finn, was in your um, um, rousing, uh, entryist, uh, takeover, momentum-inspired thing there, I don't think you're going nearly far enough. Why try to reform an institution when you could just set up another one? Why doesn't the Architecture Foundation become the great rival to the RIBA and everybody will flock to it? Strong stuff there, Hugh. Right. 
Elsie, I'd like to come back to you, if I may. Uh, just to respond to, to what Finn was saying, you know, in, in that, those, those approaches. Um, well, was it, did, did you use the word behemoth? Who used the word behemoth? Um, Finn, okay. So this is a 185-year-old institution. It survived all that time. And the reason it survived that time is because it has mechanisms to, um, to ensure its survival. Um, so, you know, um, I and loads of other people, including dear old Owen Luder, who's 90 years old, have tried and tried and tried to change the system. And I think you're right. I think it does need planning. But the thing is that number 66, which is AKA 666, something seems to happen to people when they walk through those doors. You know, they're perfectly reasonable human beings. And then the next thing you know, it's like invasion of the body snatchers. No. And they've just turned into something called a Reba president. And, um, and um, um, Simon Alford calls it a disease called presidentitis. You know, and it happens to people time and time and time again. So, you know, whoever you get in this queue of yours is going to have to ha be inoculated from presidentitis. Um, and, I, and I don't know if you've got, if you've got a file full of the stuff, but, you know, I think, I think it probably needs... Oh, you, you did. Oh, right. Oh, yes, that's the other thing. People keep saying, people keep saying, Elsie Owusu, the failed Reba candidate. And I keep saying, oh, no, I wasn't the failed Reba candidate. I'm the runner-up. He was the failed Reba candidate. So thanks for voting for me. Okay, we could, um, we've just gone over the hour mark and I think there's probably a lot more to say but maybe we can do it in a more informal fashion over some food and some drinks, I reckon. So that's, I think that's it for this particular portion of the evening. Thank you, panellists. Um, you have some Reba people in, in our midst here so I think they're here to, to answer some questions, get their emails. Um, you've got to be in it to win it, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think let the conversation continue as per these Nagoni talks. And thanks, everyone, for, for listening so far. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.